Welcome to the latest episode of the Changemakers LA podcast presented by Lisca LA. The Changemakers LA podcast is a tribute to the people and the policies that make LA neighborhoods good places to live, work, and play. My name is Alex Dawson, and I'm the Senior Program Officer at the Local Initiative Support Corporation's Los Angeles office. In today's episode, we'll talk to our guests about how they're helping address addressing housing scarcity and homelessness through urban development, social programs, and advocacy. In addition, we'll discuss how these organizations are building long-term sustainability internally and maintaining long-term impact impact externally. We're joined today by Erica Hartman, Becky Dennison, and Veronica Lewis. Erica Hartman, who joined Safe Place for Youth in 2021 as the Executive Director after 15 years in the nonprofit sector supporting people experiencing homelessness and underserved youth. Herman was formerly the Chief Program Officer of the Downtown Women's Center, or DWC, a nationally recognized homeless service organization located in the heart of downtown uh, Skid Row. During her tenure at DWC, Hartman led the unprecedented growth of programs, dramatically increasing the impact, budget size, number of staff, and women served. Hartman also led organizational DEI initiatives and the prescriptive program model development of LA Mayor Eric Garcetti's initiative to implement the recommendations of the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority Ad Hoc Committee on Black People Experiencing Homelessness and Women Experiencing Homelessness. Welcome, Erica. Becky Dennison also joins us. Becky began her tenure as executive director with Venice Community Housing Corporation in 2016. Becky brings over 20 years of experience in nonprofit management, organizational development, and community organizing to VCH. Prior to joining Venice Community Housing, Becky was the co-executive director of the Los Angeles Community Action Network, or LA CAN, where she worked alongside low-income and homeless leaders in downtown and South Los Angeles to promote social and racial justice through community organizing, civic participation, and public policy development. A former resident of Venice, she has been active in the neighborhood to ensure the historic diversity and vibrancy is protected and long-term residents can remain in the changing community. Welcome, Becky. And last but not least, Veronica Lewis is with us today. Veronica is the executive director of HOPIX, under her leadership since 2011, HUPIC's annual budget has increased by over 1,500% in the workforce by eight times. Veronica has worked tirelessly as an advocate to improve and coordinate homeless services in LA County, in particular the service planning area six, which is made up of South LA and the cities of Compton, Linwood, and Paramount. Veronica is the founder of the Thriving Spa Six Homeless Coalition. In 2014, she led and developed the one-of-a-kind SPA 6 Family Crisis Housing Network that formed in response to the changing system of care for homeless families in LA County. Under her leadership and advocacy, Hopix opened the first publicly funded interim housing location for transgender women and non-binary individuals in Los Angeles. Thank you all so much for being here. I appreciate you sharing your time and insights with us today. So without further ado, let's get into our questions. 
So affordable housing development and comprehensive homeless supportive services are in high demand, as we all know. As we continue to grapple with the homelessness crisis, overcrowded housing, and high rent crop costs, we want to talk to some of the change makers on the front line of the housing crisis. The folks with us today are leading some of the most innovative approaches to these complex housing challenges. They're also addressing the margin by supporting targeted demographic groups that experience disparate housing outcomes. These demographics are intersectional and span ethnic, racial, and other impacted identities, like Black and African Americans, Latinx, LGBTQ, elder and aging, and women. Navigating systems through housing and homeless support services can be challenging. Our guests and the organizations they lead represent best practices for wraparound services that touch on emergency and permanent housing and provide an array of other policy initiatives, community development projects, and social programs. So let me stop talking and let's talk about what you all are doing um, to address our housing crisis. So Becky, I'm gonna start with you. What role do you play in the ecosystem of housing development and homeless supportive services? Uh, Well, I think, you know, for the group that's on the call today, we're really focused on permanent housing though we do have some other emergency services and transitional housing. And I think it's been my experience and probably everyone's experience that that's been the most underinvested um, space. And so it makes it hard for emergency and transitional housing to work um, unless we've got permanent options for folks. So we've tried to focus on that primarily here at VCH, but also respond to some of the neighborhood needs and emergency needs um, at the same time. And I think a piece that we're trying to bring to the table is to remain in our neighborhood focus. So we are a West Side organization. And um, oftentimes we've seen as neighborhoods gentrify and get really expensive that neighborhood-based developers need to expand and move out of those communities and become more regional as Los Angeles has become such an expensive place to develop housing. And we've remained really committed to trying to do that here in our home communities where we have a very significant unhoused community for a very long time and a significant community voice that's trying to prevent any housing and supportive, affordable and supportive housing from happening here. Um, and so we're really trying to listen to long-term Venice residents who really want and need affordable and supportive housing in this particular neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods as kind of a way to restore access to the neighborhood and also address homelessness. Um, so, you know, lots of people are doing great work. Um, those are just a piece. Uh, we're following all of those same best practices and those are just a couple pieces of our kind of unique approach. Erica, Veronica, do you want to go next? I'll go. Okay. Thanks for having me here. I'm glad to be here with Becky and Erica. Um, and, you know, Hoppix, we, we, although we wholeheartedly believe housing is the way to get people off of the street, we do provide a lot of the supports um, across the continuum of care. So not only are we, you know, obviously working extensively to house people, and permanent housing with time-limited subsidies as well as long-term subsidies, including project-based sites like the ones that Becky was speaking about. But we also have a lot of folks on the ground. And so, you know, on any given day, we got about 50 men and women who make up these teams that include nurses and people who are formerly homeless and mental health professionals and so on, who are taking services and support to people who are living outdoors in South Atlanta and surrounding areas. And, you know, um, 
while we work to build housing, while we work to be more creative with the resources we have, our goal is to, to improve people's quality of life and stop folks from dying or getting even more sick while they're living outdoors. And also, obviously, um, trying to build a rapport so that we can help to bring them indoors. The other thing we do, you know, in addition to that is for people who are willing to come indoors, who are in some type of housing crisis, we're operating access centers and triage centers for families with children, single adults. And on any given night, happens we're keeping about 1,200 people, including about 300 kids off the street every night in a variety of interim housing programs. And so those things coupled with some behavioral health and reentry stuff, I think, and having a full continuum of care allows us to kind of move people along in our own um, uh, continuum. But the other thing that I think that, that makes us um, strong is we have a diverse group of people and the majority of the people who are working at OPEX at all levels um, have some type of lived experience, either formerly homeless, um, in recovery from some type of addiction, former or current consumer of mental health and or formerly incarcerated. And so those voices at all levels really make sure that we stay true to what meeting the actual need. Um, and it also allows us to, you know, use the model that we came up with this year that we are the community we serve. And that plays out in a variety of different ways. The only other thing I'll say, in addition to all the direct service stuff, as the lead agency for what's, you know, essentially the coordinated entry system in our region, um, I think the collaborative partnerships also allow us to do a lot of the great work. We have a lot internally, but working in tandem with private and public entities across our region in LA County allows us to really wrap our arms around folks and try to restore hope and get them off the street ultimately. Yeah, um, so I, we do some of the sort of similar things um, that Veronica and Becky had mentioned. Um, but we are specifically a youth service provider. So we serve young folks who are ages 12 to 25, and we serve about 20% of the youth who are unhoused in Los Angeles. Um, and really our goal is to prioritize low barrier and culture responsive services, um, services that are uh, trauma-informed and um, to really ensure that we're providing the gamut of wraparound services from the street outreach to the drop-in basic needs resources, case management, mental health. Um, a really key exit strategy for youth is through education and employment. Um, and then we also provide a range of housing options um, from emergency housing to permanent housing across the county. Um, and then and each night we house about 182 young people. Um, and while we're not a developer, we are excited to be partnering with VCH on a new building um, that will house uh, 40 folks and have a drop-in center on the ground floor. And so a lot of our work with regards to the ecosystem around housing development is through advocacy and trying to engage the community um, in supporting housing in their neighborhood, providing education about the experiences of the folks that we're serving um, and, you know, working with our elected officials to, you know, have their support in, in moving various things forward. Um, and then for, you know, in terms of providing services, we are really committed to meeting um, unmet needs and ensuring that we're uh, providing the gamut either directly or through partnerships. Um, for youth in particular, uh, we've noticed that it creates a really significant barrier if they have to, you know, take all their personal belongings and travel all over the city to get their resources. So, you know, trying to be as much of a, you know, one-stop uh, shop for folks to come um, has been really key. And, you know, I think that it's it's really 
about how we've done this collaborative work. And, um, you know, we, we are part of collaboratives in Hollywood as well, just to make sure that, um, yeah, that we're, that we're reaching folks and working with our partners to do our best work. Thank you all. So based on what you all have just talked about, each of you have complex organizations with different programs, functions, and initiatives. How do your systems, uh, your organizational structure and infrastructure support the outcomes you intend to make and what strengths do you want to highlight? Uh, we can start with Erica. Yeah, um, so I, you know, I think you spoke to the disproportionality and in youth in particular, some of the disproportionality that we see is, um, you know, around the number of folks who are LGBTQ in particular is considerably higher than in the adult population. Um, we also see, you know, disproportionate numbers of people of color, specifically black folks. Um, about 40% of the folks we serve are from the child welfare system. And so we've been really intentional about trying to have the population of, um, that we're serving represented and reflected in our staff. Um, and we, you know, have, you know, been again, intentional about um, recruiting board members and leadership at all levels and staff that have some of the similar parallel experiences and specifically hiring 30% staff that are folks with lived experience and 10% who are former recipients of our services so that we're making sure that our work is informed by those lenses. And I think that's really what has added value um, to our work and helps us continue to adapt our supports, um, which we implement through, you know, robust continuous quality improvement. Yeah, I'll say, you know, ongoing process improvement, I just want to uplift what I'm about to share what I think are some of our strengths. We are constantly assessing and trying to understand um, what we can do better. And part of that comes from a collaborative decision-making process. And so as we're um, delivering the, the array of services that we have, we're constantly getting feedback from the people doing the work who, and I've already said, you know, we are the community we serve and that mean, we, I mean that we look like the community that we serve because we literally are, um, including the geographic ties and, you know, some of the lived experience and also, you know, the majority of our employees are black and brown and that's the majority of the population that we serve, but a collaborative decision-making process, um, both as, in terms of how we're providing support to our employees, but obviously the direct services on the ground, I think is a strength. We have a heavily based, uh, field-based model. And so we are both literally and figuratively meeting people where they are. So I talked about the outreach piece, but that's only one of them. Like hundreds of the people that we serve, the primary spaces where they receive services are either in their newly, um, their newly found homes or in other places where they're comfortable. And so literally and figuratively meeting people where they are is a cornerstone of what we do. And also, I think, you know, really empowering our team members to speak truth to power and to advocate. And so because we're on the ground and we understand what's not working, what's working, I think, you know, not just at my level, but at all levels, we're encouraging our employees to speak up and speak out, not to be contradictory. But if you're in these conversations or in these settings where, where policy decisions and funding decisions and program design decisions and shifts in policies that are going to impact the people we serve don't necessarily make sense then say something. And I think that's critically important for our organization to be known. If Poppix is in the space and it doesn't make sense or, or there's a concern about how it's going to impact them, 
ultimate outcome of what we're trying to do, then, you know, most people know if somebody from Hoppix is in the room, we're going to speak up and say something. And I think that's really impactful um, because we have made some shifts and pushed and advocated for for common sense things um, in our system. And so I'm proud of that. I might not have too much new to add. Um, I'm assuming maybe some of the reasons we were selected is because we've had some similar approaches in our organizations. Um, but I do just want to reiterate that, um, you know, having folks with lived experience at every level of the organization, um, board, all levels of staff, on our tenant advisory boards, et cetera, um, is a key piece of us doing our work and can't highlight enough that our um, board long before I was here and, and all of our leadership is really um, encourages folks to be advocates and use their voice and experience in whatever room that comes up and or to be a part of an organized voice that's really challenging these systems that continue to harm folks. Um, and I think that makes it for a better workplace too. So I think that helps with like retention and then consistency. So one of the things we've heard from people for a long time is just so much staff turnover is really hard for people having to reconnect with case managers. So everything we can do to think about really building a collective that people feel a part of um, for the long-term is helpful, both because we wanna be an equitable workspace um, and we want that workspace to serve folks and uplift people in a way that quite frankly, for many, many years in Los Angeles, people were not, right? And so the service system was really set up from a very paternalistic, um, non-representative space. And I think we're trying to use our collective learning in that way to upend that and, and to help all of our partners go through that same process. I think more and more people are starting that process or in the midst of it or finishing it up. Thank you all. Um, so how has or has your direct engagement with impacted demographics influenced or, or changed the way you deliver services over time? Um, we can start with Veronica, if you want to start. Thank you for that question. I think I, I spoke to, you know, we are the community we serve and, and collaborative decision-making and all those things um, already. But some of the things I, I you know, we, we listen, we listen closely. And I, because we're on the ground doing the work and also take the leadership role to bring all these different bodies in who are also doing the work, we have a very clear understanding of what's happening. And I think that for us, it pushes the advocacy right, for funding or to shift the way resources that we already have are being used, it pushes us to try pilots in some cases that are funded and other cases that are not. And so the Casa de Zuma, the first publicly funded um, interim housing site for transgender and gender nonconforming folks, we, we put, when I say we fought, we literally fought for that. And that came from conversations with one of my sister agencies, APAIT, about the experiences that their clients were having in general shelter. And it just, it just wasn't, um safe it wasn't can do it it wasn't affirming and so that coupled with like an older adult program coupled with our streets to home program trying to move hundreds of people directly from street encampments into permanent housing i mean we we literally i know it sounds oversimplistic but we listen and we look at the existing resources we have and if we can shift and contort them to try things differently than what the structure is then we do that if it does need a new funding then we push for that or we look for opportunities to to try to fill the gap, but um, we literally simply listen and never feel like we've gotten this thing all together and we know what works and we're everything we're doing is great. We're constantly learning and constantly assessing and constantly trying to get better, um, not just to look better, but to actually meet the needs in a way that's meaningful and that's culturally relevant and that's responsive and sustainable. Thank you. 
Yeah, I think um, for me personally and for BCH, I, I started this work as a case manager and then was a community organizer for a very long time. And so I think that everything we do is kind of informed from the lens that I spoke to, which is folks have just been worked over in so many of these systems, including housing and uh, services. And so um, in the way that we um, build our staff, we have a shared leadership approach that is a similar to a, a collaborative decision-making, right? Because one person can't always make the right decisions. It's where you need to be creative and have input and incorporate what people are really saying to you. Um, and I think that it, you know, BCH has long been very committed to housing first. We weren't sort of sort of strong-armed into that. And um, I think, you know, I personally did a lot of work with LAMP when that was first coming up. So we really do take the whatever it takes for as long as it takes approach because people are just different and going through things in different ways. And I guess the last piece is more recent uh, for me, I think, which is we're really trying to uplift people with mental illnesses in a different way who just get continually demonized in our citing of affordable housing in ways that are just beyond acceptable. And so we're trying to think through, like, what does that mean in terms of the way we provide service, the way we advocate, who, who spokespeople are in certain ways, but, you know, so we're uplifting voice, we're uplifting strength, but also providing some um, protection and solidarity to that level of, of conflict. So, you know, in, in just a variety of ways. And I think the takeaway for me is just like, you can never stop doing that. It has to be a part of our work all the time in which we're talking to folks outside of our own circle, even outside of our own programs, um, to keep thinking about how we do better, how we do more, and how we, you know, break some of the, the boundaries that have stopped us from making more progress. I think that to the part of over time, um, Safe Place for Youth began in 2011 as a result of our founder recognizing that there weren't dedicated services for youth. And I think one thing that's important for people to understand is that there are so many walks of life that result in homelessness and that there's not just um, a, a one size fits all. And, you know, to you know what Veronica shared about providing, um, you know, gender affirming services or, you know, reaching unique uh, subpopulations. I think as greater recognition of that has occurred, um, there's been more intentional efforts around that. And so, you know, for SPY, we started with that focus on a specific subpopulation. And because of just the in increase in homelessness across the board, we've been growing exponentially. Um, and between 2019 and 2021, we were doubling in size each year um, just to try to, you know, keep pace with the inflow. Um, and, you know, some of the things that we've tried to do more structurally to be intentional about, um, you know, how we're addressing, you know, the unique demographics that we're seeing um, in 2021, you know, with a greater collective awareness of racial injustice, our organization updated our mission to incorporate addressing racial and systemic inequity. Um, and we also uh, added inclusivity to our values so that we're constantly, you know, reminding ourselves of these things as North Stars and that as we are, you know, looking at opportunities, looking at our approach to our work, um, you know, recognizing that 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 is what we have centered in, you know, how how we're going to, um, you know, meet folks needs. So I think that there is an element of evolution of understanding and, you know, making that more 
uh, you know, specifically embedded in, in how we're operating so that, you know, it doesn't get lost or go by the wayside and, you know, to have ongoing um, touch points and, uh, you know, work groups and things that we're holding ourselves accountable to, you know, specific milestones to make sure that, you know, we're living our mission. Thank you all so much. This has been really wonderful. And I think we have time for one more quick question. So I'll ask you to to give me a, a speed answer here. So um, if you had a magic wand and you could change the current ecosystem of service delivery and or affordable housing development to better address the needs of our unhoused neighbors, what would you do? Um, I don't have the best answer for that, but I think um, for me, I would just get to scale. Like everything we do, we know how to do. Uh, we're certainly um, getting better at, you know, really calling out and breaking down the systems of structural racism that have been a part of our systems as well. Um, but both on the advocacy and organizing side, on challenging those systems more and doing what we know works, and, and we certainly know it does, is just like getting to scale. So like having the all levels of government fund at the level of need versus the scarcity model. Um, and there's enough folks out here who know how to do it and, and again, can continually challenge ourselves to get better and be sure that we're building a, a system of, of care and of, with justice in mind. Um, but it really is just about this continual model of scarcity. Um, and unless we move to, to the scale of need, we're just going to always, I think, feel, and so will people experiencing homelessness feel this deep level of um, you know, exclusion and frustration and harm. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what Becky said. I would add to that, you know, to be very clear, to have strategic alignment across all the different key stakeholders that um, hold the purse strings within our region, within Los Angeles, to do what we know works, not just take stuff to scale, but look at what we know actually works. There's been lots of pilot boutique programs, projects, and take that to scale and remove all the political um, interference, all the egos, all the grudges, and all of the other things that just simply impede our ability to serve people the way we know how, um, well-resourced and strategically. The only other thing I would say, you know, is I think that, you know, for me, quite frankly, in our region, we're, we, we can see where the pendulum is swinging going in the opposite direction in some cases and the public dollars eventually you know maybe drawing up which is the opposite of this and so we're trying to figure out how do we really maximize private dollars so that we can do what we know works without the government red tape constraints um and then the last thing i would say you know is i think that there's a lot of land in la there's a lot of abandoned abandoned land there's a lot of government-owned land um, and there's also a lot of owners who are in the private market, not accessing private dollars to build um, units. And I think that we just need to get a lot more creative looking at what exists in our region so that we can um, adjust, renovate, build on those existing dwellings to create um, more permanent housing, in addition to obviously all the great work that's being done in affordable and um, PSH. But we, we need to get more creative with the resources, with the land and physical resources that we have. Yeah, I completely agree with those. And I think that, um, 
you know, part of it for us, um, you know, maybe just seeing the focus on youth is addressing the inflow that, you know, providers are working as hard as they can to house people as quickly as they can. And, um, but we also have to address the number of folks that are falling into homelessness. And that includes addressing, you know, systems gaps. Um, at the end of December, SPI was called in to, um, you know, take in the youth who were aging out of the child welfare system um, when the COVID relief money ended. And so that was a great big, you know, trying to pr pr provide that emergency response. But that's something that we know was coming. We know that that problem exists and that we, we really need to shore that up. Um, and for some of these things too, just the bureaucratic process to, to try to move anything forward, you know, all, all these um, the time and energy that goes into making this change it takes away from time for us to build housing or provide services and, you know, things like, you know, full funding for programs. You know, one of the things that all providers have been dealing with during this time in particular has been trying to have enough staff and being able to pay competitive wages to, you know, other you know, government entities um, so that we don't lose our teams and so that our teams are not, you know, completely overmaxed and that, you know, we're, uh, walking the walk as anti-poverty organizations and, um, you know, paying competitive salaries. So I think that those are a number of things. I think that we need more landlords that are willing to open their homes to folks. Um, and, you know, wherever we can get, you know, the support of the community, um, you know, unit acquisition support, I think that those are all things that, uh, you know, will, will make a difference um, along with community education and getting community buy-in. Thank you all so much, uh, Veronica, Erica, Becky. Thank you so much for being here today and joining me for this critical conversation. Your insights are essential in understanding what is being done to address the affordable housing and homelessness crisis and helping our unhoused neighbors. You also provided uh, insight on how your uh, organizations work and the, the, um, the way that your organizations operate to serve your communities. I look forward to seeing all of you continue to dismantle systemic barriers that cause homelessness through your groundbreaking work. This episode of Changemakers LA was made possible by our partner, Roy and Patricia Disney Foundation. If you'd like to learn more about how we support place-based initiatives for housing and economic development at West Los Angeles, please visit us at www.list.org slash Los Angeles and follow us on Twitter at ListLA. You can find the rest of the series on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles. This podcast was produced in collaboration with Ron Alhampton, founder of Growing Greatness Now. Growing Greatness Now is a consulting firm committed to social and environmental justice.